You're listening to the Art of Move podcast, hosted by Dr. William Raybar and Anthony Manuel, where we attempt to create a grand unified theory of human movement, biomechanics, and training. If you enjoy these episodes, you can watch them streamed live on nofilter.net, where you can interact directly and have all your questions answered in real time. Four, three, two... One, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Art of Move podcast with myself, Anthony Manuel, my good friend, Dr. William Raybar. We're still out here in the Canadian Rockies trying to find the ground unified theory of human movement, biomechanics, and everything else that that comes along with the human experience as a whole. We're kind of branching out. So if you're used to us just talking about biomechanics, well, we still are. We're talking a lot about biomechanics today, but we're talking about consciousness. We're talking about the nature of life, reality, and the human experience as a whole. So uh, today we're going to bounce off just a couple of videos that Will had pulled up. We're going to talk a little bit about Stu McGill. And Will, why don't you share with everyone what you've kind of pulled up here for us and some of the things that you've been looking into and and thinking about lately. Okay, so uh, this is going to be Stu McGill, and uh, it's really going to be about the debate around whether to be a neutral spine or can you flex during lifting? And it goes bigger than that though. It goes more broadly. Is lifting the best way to rehab yourself? Because I think that one, it's extrapolated just in the air, just in the air of, you know, fitness and biomechanics that lifting is the best way to do things, to get more powerful, to rehab. It's used for everything. And it's also studied the most. It's what science views in its lens the most, okay? Especially when it's applied to strength and conditioning and uh, a lot of physios are using it. Uh, again, I'm, I'm probably going to be straw man there. Like, no, no, it's not. It's uh, clamshells and band external rotations and, you know, FRC, how to move each joint. And I love all that, okay? Maybe I don't, but um, <laughs> the, the point is, you see, you see, you see that there's a, there's a, there's a specific application, but maybe it's overused as an application. And, and I think, I think the, what I'm hearing is like, everyone is putting things through a resistance training and linear movement lens and, and the, the sort of lever system setup of kinesiology, where we were looking at like joints as levers and different things, we're putting everything through that lens. And so all the studies are around strength and conditioning and movement practice. It's, it's around that lens of of maybe a, a less sophisticated look at the human body in terms of how it moves. We've talked a lot about how most of these, this research doesn't account for the force transference of fascia. We haven't, it doesn't account for the spiral dynamics of different locomotive patterns. It's looking at linear lifting, sagittal and frontal plane movement in the human body and not accounting for a lot of other movement realities that happen. So. Exactly. So where the debate is right now, is it, can you flex during a lift? Should you keep a neutral spine? Should you anterior tilt? Should you posterior tilt your pelvis? I think there's massive amounts of confusion over what happens. The Stu McGill model is really the um, most popular. You see squat you doing it all the time. And that is a stability model, almost the antithesis of what uh, we're going for, which is rotary, which is movement, which is pressure wave, which is energy through the body. Okay. So I do see that uh, the lifting lens is brought into everything. Okay. So that goes to rehab, strength and conditioning and how to fix your body. So I do think that in the air, there's a thought that if you get a bigger squat, everything's going to be, uh, extrapolated to that. You're going to be healthier. Okay. So it's a good way to be healthier. And I think the average person does think that it's a good way to build muscle and it's a good way to be stronger in your sport. So it does everything deadlifting, squatting, 
Um, and a lot of the research-based physios and chiropractors and sports med go towards this angle. Okay. But is there a lot of research towards this? Is it pointing that way? I'm not sure. Okay. So I think in the air, people think it is, but I think we're going to see today that it's not. Okay. And we're going to see through a debate with Andrew Locke, who is a McGill guy, he rehabs under the McGill system versus Greg Lehman. This is everyone, uh, the research-based physio chiropractor. He's there, uh, met, he's one of the higher ups. Okay. Mm -hmm. So a lot of them have the academic crush on this guy. He is, and he's done a lot of good work, right? He is the movement optimist guy. The, uh, don't give people nocebo. You've heard this before. Nocebo is don't tell people you can't do movements because every movement's fine as long as you progressively overload it. Okay. So where the McGill model differs is that there's a particular way to do things. And that is to keep the spine relatively neutral or in neutral as you lift. Okay. And again, he looks at it through the lifting lens always. Okay. And extrapolates that into every, everything to do with rehab, but to keep the spine in neutral so that people don't get disc herniations or when they do keeping us, the spine in neutral is a good idea. And I agree with that. Okay. But there's much more nuance to it. So let's listen to a little bit of the debate here. And I'm going to pull up random clips because I didn't have time to exactly um, edit them. But we'll bounce off them. And there's a lot of telling tales within the debate here. Okay. So anything I'll, to, to say about yeah, that? I'll just, I'll just take a second to define the nocebo thing a little bit for those who aren't familiar yes. with the term. And, and movement optimism is this idea, like you alluded to, that any training can be done in a safe and effective manner with no negative consequences, as long as you are cognizant of load management and progressive overload. So if you don't exceed your capacity to recover, if you train within, you know, safe limitations of progressive overload and you don't uh, like sacrifice joint integrity as you're training, you can, you can do basically anything you can do the heavier Jefferson curls that it's progressively built up to. You can do a lot of different things and it won't injure you. This is, of course, one of the arguments against a biomechanics-informed approach to training, which asserts that if you train in a linear way, it will, or like in in with barbells and with different, uh, you know, traditional strategies, you might develop negative compensations in your movement patterns because you are training your nervous system and your your system in general to you know, to optimize your movement in this particular way. There's the specific adaptations to impose demands. They're saying, saying that there are bad movements to do gets in people's heads and it stops people from training and it stops people from doing exercise because they're too freaked out about, oh, you know, should I, uh, should I actually do this movement? Is it going to hurt me? Is it going to cause an injury? Is it going to make me less efficient? Da, da, da. So that, that's the sort of, you know, basically I think there's biomechanists or the niche alternate biomechanics sphere that's saying, actually, there is a correct way to move and we should do our own training to optimize for that. And then there are movement optimists that are saying, it doesn't matter what you want to do. You can do any movement. There are no negative consequences, just as long as you manage your load intelligently. Exactly. And they, they don't believe that there is a optimal way to move through nature. Okay. They believe if, as long as you progressively overload, you're good to go. Okay. So, um, it's really the blueprint that makes the difference, right? 
I do think, or we do think that there is an optimal way to move according to nature. Spiral patterns, rotary patterns, spinal engine, uh, being in the back chain, uh, pressure waves through the body. This is much different than as long as you progressive overload the movement, you're good. And if they don't even go with movement either, they're just like stabilize uh, and then you're good to go. You know, like as long as you progressively overload it, you're good to go. Okay. And, I may uh, be straw manning slightly there, but it's close. And when, when we're, when we're talking about optimal, we're saying maybe the most mechanically efficient in terms of how our body is actually put together in terms of all of the factors, including the fascia, including the connective tissue and the bones. And like, we're looking at the, the reason that we are a biomechanics podcast is we're looking at the mechanical realities of what's happening. And that's kind of what interests us, right? So um, if you're looking at the most efficient mechanical way to move, you have to look at the body and assume that there is a more and less efficient way to move. And if you optimize for that efficiency, then you will have to train a certain way and training in other ways like barbell lifts, like linear lifts, like conventional weightlifting will cause inefficiencies in your movement patterns because of the adaptations that you're having. So that's, that's sort of the position we've asserted over, over 80 episodes of yeah. the art of move. So let's, let's, uh, let's listen to this. We got Greg Lehman and Andrew Locke. What's a little bit of background about this clip? So they're debating uh, deadlift technique and low back pain. Okay. And uh, again, you'll kind of see throughout this whole thing that it's all over the place because one, they extrapolate technique, pain, and rehab, to, and they intermix them when they're two, when they're three different things, right? In my opinion, and uh, I'm gonna play it, and you'll kind of see, and we'll uh, we'll go as as we uh, as we play along here. So, uh, sorry to give a little bit of context here. Um, Andrew Locke is the big guy here. He's a world record holder, I believe, in powerlifting. You can see he's a massive guy. He wears a giant uh, chain on his neck. Um, he's basically saying that there is an optimal way to lift for technique. And he invokes, he's like, I'm the strongest guy. I, I uh, train the strongest guys in the world. So I, I know plus uh, science and physiology say that there's an optimal way to lift. And... Uh, Greg Lehman's like, yeah, that's nice, but uh, you could just progressively overload here. And uh, there's a difference between technique and the cause of pain. Okay, so that's the background. And Greg Lehman's about to come back with his comeback. Can you pause for a second? Because I can't yeah. really hear. I can't really hear what he's saying. He's saying there's a difference between technique and the cause of pain. Yeah. So he's saying uh, the research doesn't know if there's a difference between the technique and cause of pain. And that's kind of why I'm playing this, right? Like, um, it, again, in the air, it's supposed to be known that we already know this within the research, and we, being the science-based research, already knows this, but they don't. Actually, they have no, like, with all the research being funneled towards this area, they still don't know if that's the case. Hmm. If lifting is preventing injury or even causing the injuries. So I'm going to play it once more, maybe. Yeah. Did you hear that? 
Yeah, so he does agree that there's an optimal technique for performance, but th that research isn't asserting that there is an optimal uh, point to, to eliminate pain or, or limit pain. Exactly. So uh, there's no uh, research that says that uh, basically that um, technique will eliminate pain. I'm going to play it one more time so you can hear it from him. What we don't have a lot of research on is the technique yeah. to minimize uh, pain, long-term pain. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty funny because in this debate, Andrew Locke goes pretty aggressive at uh, at Greg Lehman, and mm -hmm. he does say he's like I'm he he's like basically I'm a that world's best lifter. I work with the world's best lifters, therefore I have uh, a lot of credibility in this uh, field, right? And you'll see this kind of attitude being displayed everywhere. I work with athletes, therefore I know what I'm talking about, right? Or um, I have this lifting technique. Uh, are you there or did you cut off? Yeah, I believe either I cut off or Anthony cut off there. Um, anyway, you'll see this a lot in the research-based field and in the fitness community that um, basically if you work with athletes, you have more credibility. That shouldn't be the case so much, right? So. I think that uh, there is something to working with athletes if you're actually changing their mechanics. So you'll see a lot of this from functional patterns. You'll see a lot of this from the WEC method guys. I know Connor Moves works with um, uh, Olympic wrestler. I can't remember his name right now. Jordan Burroughs. And you can see the movement difference within the athlete as they move. Same with Naudi and his fighter. Um, I can't remember his name, but he's worked with Jeremy Stevens and he works with a Bellator fighter, I believe. And you can see their technique within uh, their movement, okay? Where a lot of the lifters, they will work with an athlete and they'll just be like, the power's there. You got more powerful because your strength increased. So you went, your squat went from 300 to 400, therefore you will be a better athlete, right? So again, there's a lot of confusion between athletics pain, longevity, uh, how deadlift squats, heavy lifts transform into actual motions within the body. Okay. And the rehabilitation process. These are all different things that need to be separated. And there's a massive amount of confusion between all of them. And as we just heard Greg Lehman say, there's not a lot known about the lifting technique well and the long-term pain. It's it's kind of interesting too because even the idea of a optimal technique for performance you would think isn't necessarily a thing if you factor in for different torso lengths and lever lengths and in the length of legs and everything like I remember seeing a lot of T-Nation articles when I was like a young budding lifter about like how tall guys can squat and deadlift effectively because they have these longer levers right that that they have to accommodate for so an optimal technique for my you know, five foot eight, very compact, proportionate skeletal structure is going to be different from like a lanky six foot four dude 
who's bending over way more and has to move the weight a longer distance like that, that alone is like, well, there are different mechanical realities. So how can you assume an optimal technique for every human body and every lever length? The other thing is th there's this idea, even in powerlifting of neurological efficiency, Pavel Tsautsalin, the Russian powerlifting coach, uh, had this term grease the groove, which is you're greasing this neurological pattern so that you can become more effective at the pattern. It's technique. You are becoming more effective at firing your nervous system and recruiting motor units in the sequence to optimize the efficiency of your movement pattern while you're lifting this weight. Like a deadlift is a specific pattern. So if you're optimizing your nervous system to fire in that particular sequence, wouldn't that have an impact on your other movement outside of the lift? Like if you're optimizing and, and like deadlifts are a huge neurological input, lifting 400, 500, 600 pounds off the ground is a massive demand on the, the nervous system and, and trying to recruit motor units. Wouldn't that show up in your other patterns if you're becoming, you know, extremely efficient at firing in that particular sequence? Yeah. Not to mention, does it mess up, you know? I think let's say Gota would say your columns would get wider. You're you're tending to widen your base because that's where you find your support in lifting, right? Mm. And then there's the um there's the fact that what is your proof? So a lot of these guys, the proof is the research, right? And that's all they'll look at. Both of these guys, Andrew Locke and Greg Lehman, the proof is the research. So they're just arguing between the research and maybe a little bit of anecdote but it's mostly research and that's what they'll stick to on both camps so they'll look at the same research like uh greg layman said there reasonable people can look at the same research and come to different conclusions but also i think reasonable reasonable people can extrapolate mechanics like engineering mechanics mechanical principles that you can observe and make logical inferences about what's happening or what should happen according to mechanical principles of of observation okay through observation i should say right but they don't go there they only go to uh what the research says okay so i'm gonna play another clip here and uh did you have anything else to say about that one no 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 what's uh what's the background on the next clip i'm not sure um <laughs> we're just pull, we're pulling up random clips we'll and pull, from there. exactly for the moment episode. it is absolutely okay so let's play this one here So did you hear that? That's interesting. Okay. So, um, make the hips, your prime mover. I like that. Right. So, um, hips versus the back, but a lot of times you will observe really heavy lifters lifting with a rounded spine, whether that comes from the lumbar spine or thoracic spine. I think, you know, mechanically it should come from the thoracic spine first. And you'll see that with a, uh, Atlas stone, right? Um, you'll see the upper back round before the low back. Mm -hmm. So it, it's interesting because the prime mover should be your hips. I think they're both in agreement here. However, the disagreement is how much you should be able to flex in the lift itself through the lumbar spine. But I actually don't think that they really can see in live, uh, in live time where the flexion is actually coming from specifically. 
Like you don't think you can observe a deadlift and see what part of the spine is flexing or what's, what's the, what's the thing you think they can't observe? I think they can't, they can observe it grossly, but they can't observe it, uh, perfectly at moment to moment in the segment itself. Okay. So they can't see if it's coming from T12 or L2. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that would take very sophisticated equipment and very, um, yeah, very delicate equipment in a lab. I believe they probably could do it, but I don't think they can do it in movement. They could probably only do it in lifting and only very specialized equipment. And uh, I don't think there is a ton of research on that, right? So that's where that is right now. I'm going to keep playing. So did you hear about that? Like they, they only have anecdote data, right? So they don't even have hard data on this, according to Greg Lehman about the actual spinal flexion, like we were saying before, right? Mm. But which segments actually spinally spinal flex and how much. So basically he's saying we shouldn't re really quibble about the amount of flexion because we don't even have the data on it. We should be worried more about other principles that go ahead of that, like lifting from your hips, right? Right. Or getting more motion into your hips. I'm kind of extrapolating that from what he's saying, but that makes sense to me, right? So um, it, it's also interesting. I want to point out where they say they don't have research. Again, number one, they don't have research on uh, where the spinal flexion and how much spinal flexion should come from the lumbar spine or how much does come from the lumbar spine during a lift. And I believe the only ones that the only research that's out there is McGill with pig spines, flexing yeah. and extending pig spines, right? So um, they're unsure about how much spinal flexion is actually okay in the lumbar spine. And the overarching question is why only flexion? Like, why do we care so much about flexion during lifting? Because again, that's a specialized thing. But that's where all the research is going and they don't even know how much like with all the research that's there and all the resources that are put towards it they still don't know well this is uh i mean when you're talking about research there's there is a lot of research on on lifting right but this spinal flexion debate why why do you think it matters um i i really think it shouldn't matter that much but it does because that's where all the resources are going and that's where all the thought is. Okay. So like amongst research-based clinicians, physios, chiropractors, it's, you can see the debate still there. It's like, um, I saw a post by a really, uh, popular physio on Instagram and they're like, it was like a burning witch meme. And it's like the witch was spinal flexing. And it's like, that's going against the grain now is allowing for spinal flexion, allowing people to do just Jefferson curls. You see it in ATG actually, right? It's like, look, I can spinal flex. It's a theme you're seeing everywhere. Like there's no doubt about it, right? In the fitness industry. But to me, it's very, uh, a very shallow debate because it's missing. It's missing the point of energy movement through the body, spinal engine, pressure wave, 
all that's thrown out the window and it's frontal plane flexion and extent or sorry, uh, sagittal plane flexion and extension is the important debate. However, it is important to lifters. And here we're having a lifting debate because that's where all the research and all the, the topics are. Okay. And all the, basically the crowd is looking towards this and the research is looking towards this and they still don't know. I mean, it's, it's funny because like you, like gymnasts, for example, have been doing spinal flexion stuff in, in the frontal plane for ages, for like a gazillion years. Um, there was this old thing where it's like, we do J curls, like we breathe, like it's just an omnipresent reality of, of what we do in our training, because, you know, you do want to like for, for gymnasts, they do want to have strength and like, they do want to have these positions. Gymnastics is, is, is a specific thing on its own. It's a very specialized, uh, movement practice on its own, but like <laughs> gymnasts have known like the answer to this debate for a gazillion years. It's like, you do just progressively load it. It's fine. You know, like you're trying to, you're trying to actually have access to these ranges and the ability to flex in these ranges. Strength in gymnastics is, is a totally different skill. It's a totally different application than trying to maximally lift, you know, 600, 700 pounds off the ground. Uh, but I would assume that you would still want to, like, if your spine did bend, I would assume that you would want a certain le a level of uh, flexion and extension durability and resilience if, you, if you're lifting that much amount of weight. Like, I find it very, very difficult to maintain a neutral spine and anything after 400 pounds, or at least I did when I was powerlifting, right? Anything after 400 pounds, my, my thoracic would start to round quite a bit. Or when I was fatigued at the end of a, like a heavier set, it would start to round. And I would, that was my focus. It was maintain stability and integrity in my lumbar, brace the shit out of my core. So I didn't lose my spinal position. But if I rounded a little bit, of course, the, the effect of that was like 10 years of deadlifting like that gave me a kyphosis that just in the last year. I've started to reverse a little bit. So I had a thoracic kyphosis that was like chronic. It impeded my airway. It impeded my, my breathing. <laughs> and now I'm only just, just starting to now after a year of doing some more biomechanics informed training and breathing exercises, just starting to flatten out that excessive curve in my T-spine. So th there's so much nuance to this actually. Okay. So you mentioned the gym gymnasts who should be able to Jefferson curl all the way over and have that range of motion because they need it in their sport. The lifters uh, don't need as much because, I mean, they're just going in a smaller range of motion. However, it's more important because they're lifting heavier weight. Now, I'm going to tell you a rehab story that I've seen in particular, okay, where somebody hurts. Sharing your screen real quick, too. Oh, yeah. Um, no problem. Okay. So I'm going to tell you a rehab story that's happened to me and or uh, a patient of mine, patient X, okay, and They've hurt themselves years back. They had a, what they thought was a disc herniation confirmed by MRI, even though I don't trust that that much for, we'll get to that in another episode, but they had a confirmed by MRI a couple of years ago, every few months. So they probably have six weeks of good, uh, pain-free, uh, movement. And they, they bike a lot and hike a lot. And then they have three or four weeks of pain, six weeks of good movement, three or four weeks of pain, right? And the rehab they got was to avoid flexion because that is going to put pressure on the disc. Okay. But it is also going to scare you into doing a re like, so in your rehab, you're not doing any flexion because their uh, physio told them not to do it. 
but in real life, they're going to have to flex fast. Okay. Because they bike. What do you think is going to happen? They're going to, they're going to be avoiding and scared of flexion and safety is the, one of the number one things, if not the number one thing, your central nervous system has to know, and your body has to be safe with where you're going. So they were flexing no matter what, but they weren't doing in the rehab scenario. They were given the nocebo. They were told you can't do this. This is going to be bad for your back. They came into me. They told me it's bad for my back. I can't do this. I'm like, no, no, no. We're going to rehab back into it slowly. Okay. So even in my world, I do encounter this in a rehab setting. However, the rehab setting is not the lifting setting and the lifters and the research guys extrapolate the lifting back into rehab. You see how that works? It's so again, we have to extrapolate and switch and parse out what is what the lifting, the specialized sports that you need it in the rehab back from an injury. And what is the blueprint to begin with? What, why are we even focusing on this? Okay. So I'm yeah, only what focusing on standard this. are you rehabilitating to exactly. So again, if you're rehabbing back towards everything is okay, as long as you progressively overload it, then yes, flexion and extension in the sagittal plane is very important to me. Uh, the hips move in a circular fashion as you move the spine waves. So I'm rehabbing towards locomotion using that model, spinal engine, pressure wave, uh, pressure dynamics throughout the body and positioning the, uh, joints and levers to be in the right position. And uh, that's on top of, um, uh, actually like more of an FRC style where, and, and I'm talking rehab right now, where I bring them back to, can you control each joint? Do you have even an awareness of where your pelvis is in space? So I don't like FRC in the long term. I think people can do it too much just to do it, almost like lifting. But in the short term, I love it because it brings awareness to an area. So for instance, again, that same patient that had the issue with their back, I get them to extend and flex their pelvis. So I have the skeleton right here, right? The pelvis right here. And they were shifted forward with an anterior tilt and they were told to go on the anterior tilt. Okay. But with a forward shifted pelvis. So that's going to take the joints of the spine and bang them together mm. on a joint that's already hot, already inflamed. Okay. So the easy fix was. Do you know what back chain is? Push your pelvis back. They're like, oh, it stops hurting, right? Mechanically, so easy. So it, it, it's like this, right? And then I'm like, now, if you go back and you flex your pelvis forward, so you do a posterior tilt, it's going to bring the, the joints apart so that your joints come apart. So going in the back chain and going into posterior tilt maximally brings the joints apart in the back. Those are the zygopophyseal joints. It may put a little bit more pressure. So this is a single disc here. So it may like, here's the back of the, the spine. So if I go back and I separate these, see these joints right here, if I separate them, they come apart and that's flexing. Okay. The disc might get a little bit more pressure, hmm. but it all depends on what is actually sensitive would dictate what you do. So being very precise with your motions has a lot to do with the very beginning of rehab. 
However, everybody wants to be like, this is the best way to do it. A posterior tilt or an anterior tilt with your hips back. Or some people are like, no, it's a neutral tilt with the hips straight in line with your pelvis or sorry, with your uh, ribs, right? Like a, you know, the straight up canister approach. But it's different when you're in pain because you have sensitive tissues sometimes, or sometimes it could be neurological, but let's say it's sensitive tissues. Exactly. You have to play into those sensitive tissues. So again, if my, let's say it's my disc, that is a problem. Flexion is going to be a problem. Now what I have to do is I have to extend and get the pressure off the disc. It's going to put more pressure on the joints. If you have a problem with both, you're pretty screwed, but um, you can dump a little bit of load into your joints because it's a less sensitive tissue and a less important tissue, I guess you can say, um, for most people. And that will reduce the load on the disc temporarily and um, allow for a little bit of healing so that you can go back to neutral afterwards or go back to a whatever tilt suits you. Mm. However, it's different when you already have pain compared to not having pain, compared to lifting when you're fine, compared to uh, rehabbing towards running. So to make it less confusing, um, I like to be in my, when tissues are not sensitive and when they're not in pain, I like to be in back chain. I like to have a slight anterior tilt. uh, And that puts the joints together in the back here, the zygopophyseal joints, the actual joints of your spine come together. And it gives you a nice lumbar curve. However, if you're sensitive there, if you already have arthritis, if you have an issue with inflammation in those joints, you have to do something else. So there's so much nuance to this. And everyone just wants to be like, this is the best. This is the best. This is the best. There's no, there's no one way. Right. And even like, that's the same thing as when I was talking about, like people have different lever lengths. So people have different tissue conditions. People have different injuries. People have different, you know, like curvatures in their spine. People even apply, people have like a different lean. They have different spirals in terms of how they, like everyone has like a, like not everyone. A lot of people have like a mild scoliosis. I'd, I'd probably wager in, in, in some sense, because like, I, like, I play guitar with like one shoulder. I t- have a tendency to lean over to one side when I sit. Like I have a mild tendency towards one spiral direction or one, you know, scoliotic position for the most part. Um, everyone just has a different spine, <laughs> you know. Um, so saying there's one one thing, and this is kind of this idea of like, you know, we 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 don't necessarily ascribe to one particular movement system we've interviewed a lot of different people we do like Goda's map for force transference in terms of uh, a, a locomotive model like we like it as a map and we like it as a map for movement practice and like an actual felt experience there's there's a lot to be said for the lived experience of of moving with uh with Goda's movement map and locomotive map but that doesn't mean that we don't apply other systems and don't apply other contexts like you said frc which you could describe as controlled articulations of specific joints is very, very useful. I do a lot of, I have a ton of scar tissue in my right wrist from an injury from when I was a kid. And I do a lot of FRC in my, in my right wrist specifically because I have so much scar tissue there. I have, uh, you know, arthritic tendencies from, you know, having this scar tissue and playing guitar for eight hours a day when I was a musician. And, you know, it's very useful. So it's a tool, but it's not my, it's not the, the, my whole practice. Cause if you're, you know, if you're articulating your joints in this particular way, well, how do your joints actually articulate when you're looking at 
creating a pressure wave in maybe Goda's locomotive system, right? Well, yeah, no, I, I agree with everything you're saying. Let's go with the principles here, saying that with FRC and with moving joints in particular, moving them a particular way will put stresses on certain joints just because of the mechanics. So it's very, very useful to know where the stresses are being put within your joints while you do certain movements. So especially as you get older, you're going to get, like if you're working with someone who's 50, 60 years old and they're in pain, they're going to have arthritis in some places. So you're going to, some people are going to be like, yeah, you need to have a anterior tilt, but they have arthritis in their joints. When they put the joints together, they hurt. Like it's that mm -hmm. simple, right? So you have to modify by... And I'm just giving you a, a specific example by really, really finding out where is the sweet spot for your movement? Is it there? Is it there? Where can you tilt your pelvis in order to put the mechanics in the most favorable position? I'll give you another example. Someone with a disc herniation in their, uh, in their left side here. Okay. Hmm. At first, what I, what I had to get them to do was to anterior tilt, so put, put their hips back, which puts more stress on the joints and less stress on the disc, and then tilt their hips towards the right so that it opened up the joint and the space in the right side of the spine, okay? So again, I wouldn't do that for a regular person because there'd be no point. You'd be putting more stress on the left side of your body, but... I have to do it for someone in pain. So they're walking around with their pelvis shifted to one side like this. Mm. But temporarily, you need to relieve the pressure off the tissues. Otherwise, you're going to be in excruciating pain. So there's so much nuance to the actual mechanics of the joint when someone's hurt and when someone's rehabbing compared to a healthy person. Um, so again, we have to separate these debates. And I see the research-based guys having such a low-level debate of flex or not flex in lifting. It's just like all the resources are being put towards these uh, strength and conditioning type of mentality uh, exercises and not enough on the actual pressure waves, the actual movements in motion that are going to stop the bleeding. So that's why I like Gota again. It's stop the bleeding. Okay. Mm. I like FRC because when you're already hurt, you can get into specific positions perfectly. Okay. And I shouldn't even say I'm not uh, licensed in FRC, I guess you can say. I just understand. I, I use that language because what I'm doing is specifically moving a joint as to get the mechanics of the pressure into a certain position as to alleviate pressure in certain joints and put it more into others from positioning. Mm. Okay. So if, if we, if we're using up too many mental resources and research resources on exploring the, the seemingly arbitrary flex versus don't flex type of thing in lifting, uh, let's define some of the things that you think in terms of like, what, what would be a good use of research or debate ideas? Like what would be good topics of debate to kind of look into? Uh, again, like what we were saying before would be use observations to see the, the populations who don't get hurt so that we can stop the bleeding so that we don't have to have these debates towards um, flexion extension. Really, it's about lifting because that's where the money is. That's where the people's minds are. 
it's like a cyclical thing, right? Like everybody thinks that that's how you get fit. So that's where the resources go. You're a research, let's say most of the research is done in a university setting with uh, sports teams. What do they want? Faster, stronger. So that's where your resources are going to go. Now, through observation of nature and through observation, you know, in the last 10 years, you have YouTube, hundreds of YouTube videos of people getting injured. And uh, we can observe slow motion with iPads uh, with precision versus uh, in the lab, they use kinematics mm. and that's only available to some people. So they've been looking at the, I'm going to say incorrect uh, things and incorrect like the flexion extension, like jumping off a box and seeing if the leg moves in or out versus actually looking at slow motion of open source injuries within the, uh, within YouTube, within, you know, on the internet, basically, because now there's thousands of them and that technology is new. So we have to shift our focus into bringing it back to basically what Gota does, right? Watch the injuries in slow motion, watch the correlations and the patterns that actually happen in real life versus just going with your old models and trying to improve strength and conditioning and then extrapolating it towards rehab, towards uh, getting stronger, towards getting buff. Mm. It, it's all melts into one at the end. Again, buff, uh, stronger, faster, and rehab. Let's melt strength and conditioning and marry physiotherapy and strength and conditioning because that's what's already popular and if you come out against that then you're just not as popular right you're not mm -hmm. playing with the big dogs because um that's where the popularity is so now like what we're doing is we're going wait a second maybe these guys that aren't credentialed are correct so that's going to be a hard thing for credentialed people to come to grips with right that maybe they aren't they don't have the proper blueprint Maybe the proper blueprint is walking and running. Maybe it is um, movement mechanics. Maybe it is stopping the bleeding versus hmm. just getting bigger and stronger. So let's let's define the bleeding. What is the bleeding that they're stopping? Um, well, like joint easy, low hanging fruit of getting into right, getting into proper positions, like I showed you, right? So, no, like people don't know that. If you shift your hips way forward, you're going to put more pressure on the low back, right? Uh, this is here. You push it's a mechanical forward. reality. Yeah, it's a mechanical reality. Easy mechanical realities that we're missing, like shifting your hip forward. Everybody is obsessed with, and I know this because I'm a, a chiro, right? So the, the field of physiotherapy, chiropractic, sports medicine is obsessed with what you should do with your pelvis. Is it an anterior tilt? Is it a neutral tilt? Is it a posterior tilt? when they're missing forward and backward shift of the pelvis, okay? As the low hanging fruit, okay? And some people recognize it, but they don't get it completely uh, on how easy it is to shift back and make the glutes the prime driver by fascial tensioning, not by muscle contracting. That's another thing. Muscle contraction is the model because it's a lever system that they're looking at. When it's a fascial system in reality that's driving things when you're in motion, but not so much when you're standing still. Again, Goda was correct about the cadaver, cadaver mechanics. Everybody's looking at things in a lever system because it was always cadaver mechanics. This lever makes sense when I'm standing still, but as like, let's say a boxer throw, it doesn't make sense anymore. 
Mm-hmm. And you can't even describe it with the language that they have right now that the academic world uses because the planes melt into each other when you actually are in motion. The frontal sagittal transverse planes melt into each other and act more like gyroscopes. Again, Goat is correct about that, right? Like they act more like gyroscopes and you can't separate the, the motions. You can try, but it's just not going to be very efficient to look at it that way. Mm-hmm. It's a rotary motions. There's rotary motions. There's spirals. There's um, reciprocations. There's fascial tensioning. There is um, all these are met. There's easy positions to get into as to make mechanical efficiencies a reality before you get injured. And the stability model that everyone uses right now, Stu McGill, um, almost everybody uses the stability models in one way or another. And they're still like, stay still as you rehab relatively still. And that'll extrapolate into your movement. Trust me, bro. Right. (laughs) Show, show them, show me your fruit. Show me actually. So the, the proof is the papers for the scientific community. When really I want to see you actually take somebody and make them move better. And that's mm-hmm. why I like, like now he's doing it with uh, Johnny Ablin. You can see the difference in his movement. This yeah. is an MMA fighter. Okay? Major that's, way, major way. Yes. So that's the difference. Again, like you can see functional patterns within Johnny Ablin. He's changing his movement. He's showing the fruit. Okay. With the go to guys, you can see the difference in the run. Whether you think it's correct or not, it's up to you, but you can see them actually changing their mechanics. And I've done it myself too. Mm-hmm. With the WEC method guys, you can see them move much more efficiently and the WEC method guys have beautiful movement in multiple planes of motion they're showing their fruits as they move now again the lifting model the rehab model is trust me bro i got you stable your core is stable you're good to go trust me right so they're actually the ones that are uh making a leap of logic and leap of faith because they're not actually showing well, it's, it sounds like then one of one of the better uses of debate and uses of mental energy, and I actually see this happening within our community, is debating on what you're seeing in slow motion video, debating on what you're actually seeing when you're observing real motion. And I mean, that's that is why you have a dichotomy between functional patterns and WEC method and GOTA and one of a kind fitness, all looking at gait in a different way and all extrapolating what it means based on own unique lenses right like Naudi is very influenced by the lines of tension that thomas myers purported in anatomy trains and goda is obviously creating their own language one of a kind fitness has his you know his, his interpretation devin brown has his interpretation of the gate model and so he's doing strength training in a way that he believes will not create compensations within that gate model, you know, loading the glutes and in internal rotation so that you, you, because that's what happens when you're in, in gate, essentially. Uh, everyone has different sort of interpretations of what they're observing. And that's kind of where the, 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 the debates happen. And they are happening. They're definitely happening. Maybe a little bit less between camps, because again, you have the the issue of, you know, big personalities who are, who are asserting the supremacy of their particular system and they don't necessarily want to debate they're they're focused and i actually think there is something to be said for developing 
for not focusing on like arguing with other people and developing your own system. Like, I think there is something to something very powerful about focusing on yourself, staying in your own lane. Uh, that being said, I think figuring out what the first principles are and agreeing on first principles to then build upon is probably going to be a, a more important situation. Like one of the things that I hear criticized about Gota, for example, is that there's not enough emphasis on what's happening within the core. And just because they're observing some of these models of gate locomotion and, and these gate mechanics, they aren't training or accounting for some of the dynamic movements that are happening within the core. They're not really training that or addressing it. And if people have dysfunctions in it, is Gota enough, is being put in a back chain and like practicing some of these like bows and corners and drop-ins and stuff. That's not going to actually do anything to correct dysfunctions uh, through the midline. I think that's a pretty valid criticism. You know, that's a, that's a criticism that comes mostly from functional pattern adherence, right? A lot of FP guys are like, well, you know, even if they're, even if they're right about some of this stuff, like you're not looking at this, 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 and this, there's, there's, they don't think it's nuanced enough, which, you know, fair enough, man. Like definitely like you can, you, I, I have experienced benefits and fruits from pa practicing go to patterns and doing some go to training. Um, but I do a bunch of other stuff too, because again, like Gota doesn't talk about the decompression of the obliques, you know, when, like when I had like this hyper compressed, uh, sort of whole front line from years of doing CrossFit and gymnastics and, and bracing my core in a shortened position. Like you need a specific approach. You need to have situational approaches to different dysfunctions right and so just having like yeah it could be a universal pattern it could be like the most efficient way that we transfer energy as human beings but when it comes to the application what are the pieces that you're missing uh yeah no i i completely agree with everything you're saying there and that that goes back to kind of like everyone's an individual at the end right it's almost so the reason I like Goda's approach off the start was it is stopping the bleeding. It's like, you don't need all this other stuff. I didn't need to lift 500 pounds. You know what I mean? Like there was no, like, here's, here's what I see all the time. I see jacked young guys come in to the office. Okay. They get hurt and they're like, I need to rehab so I can get back to that 500. You know what I mean? Or back to that heavy lift because once they hit the heavy lift, then they're good. You know what I mean? And, and like, and then it becomes a cycle of injury. And this is what happened to me too, getting back to it, injury, getting back to it. So you're always rehabbing towards back to a heavier plateau of heavy lifting. And this is kind of the default and that'll get you the muscles and the abs and the, and eventually during cutting season, you lose the fat and then you display your jackness, right? So, uh, that is a, like kind of a circular model of getting nowhere. Because you're not developing any skills. You're not stopping the bleeding. You're not, it, it really is, you want skill development. You want to be able to move things and be able to have skills for later age. That's why I like movement. I don't exactly subscribe to, you know, I, I like go to stop the bleeding approach. I like, I'll work in internal rotation. I'll do functional patterns type motions. I'll do a lot of WEC method stuff where I'm uh, switching sides and, and, uh, doing the north, south, east, west. Um, I don't know if people know whack method so much, but it's a lot of like switching angles and it's beautiful stuff, right? But I blend it all together and I find the best pieces and I put it into movement, which is a skill which I can carry into multiple sports and the rest of my life. 
And I do it within a blueprint of locomotion and not and respecting the joints. And I take FRC style um, particular motions and I use that to kind of gauge where I'm at. So for instance, I use a, a simple, I'll get into the back chain. Okay. So I'll, I'll push way back into a hinge and I'll just move my pelvis from side to side. Kind of like I'm hitting someone with my pelvis, almost like a fish type of motion, right? Hmm. Like that. I don't know if you can see that. Yeah, okay, yeah. I'm back here. Okay. Okay. And because I'm in a posterior tilt like this, as I'm doing it, it's mm. opening up the joints in the back. And when I go this way, when I go to the left, the right joints will open up. I can feel the tension there. When I go to the right, the left joints open up. I can feel the tension there. This morning, for instance, I just did 20. I could feel that my left side was tighter. It was had more resistance. I went to the left a little bit more. It loosened up and I'm good to go. I'm good to go do my movement, right? I don't need to do it that much. So that's what I find good about uh, like the functional range or the very specific joint motions. Again, I'm not certified. So I'm just going to say, because I know what happens mechanically as I move, mm -hmm. I can do that a little bit, find out where my body's tense, feel what's what, and then go and do my thing. It's almost more like fine tuning your car before you go drive it. Right. Uh, and I mean, like when you're talking about, you want to be able to move one of the things that we've talked about before and that I've been thinking about a lot is what are the practices? What are the movement practices that produce competent elders, physically competent elders? So the two ones that keep coming up for me are you see calisthenics, you know, the old 70 year old man in the park doing pull-ups and muscle-ups and, you know, still moving around pretty good. And these like 80 year old Russian boxers, <laughs> you know, it's always, it's always old Russian men that I see mm -hmm. on online. Right. Or like an old black dude at a park who's just like ripped beyond reason. It's like, he's 70 years old. And he's just like this Jack dude. So, <laughs> you know, um, so thinking about that, it's like what, what movement practices produce physical competency well into old age. And then you look at guys like, you know, like you see the documentary with Ronnie Coleman in the wheelchair and, you know, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of looking like a sack of potatoes, still pumping iron, still doing his thing. But it's, uh, you, I really, th this is something that I, I kind of hit this point too, where you're talking about that cycle of injury. Um, same thing. I kind of hit my 500 pound deadlift and I was trying to push it a little bit higher. I'd get injured. And then I was like, okay, I'll try something else. I'll try to get stronger in the clean. And I got to like a 275 pound clean and I got my, you know, like my 450 deadlift and I was like doing CrossFit and then I would get injured. And then it's like, okay, well, I'll rehab, 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 get a little bit stronger, a little bit fitter, injure myself, keep going, keep going, keep going, a little bit stronger, a little bit fitter injury. And that cycle, I just realized it's like, look, this is, this has been going on for like fucking 10 years and I'm smart with my programming. I'm, I'm doing everything. I'm doing my mobility. I'm doing my stability. I'm progressive. This is all stuff that I can handle. I'm not training above like an 80% effort. Like I would injure myself doing stupid shit like warmups, like, you know, 35 to 45% load squats or a front squat or an overhead squat or something like very, very light is when I would. And, and I saw, I was like, there's no rhyme or reason to this. Like I'm just doing these movements and I'm injuring myself. There's got to be a better way. And that's kind of, you know, that's why I started getting into the ATG stuff. That's why I started getting into range of strength. I was still looking at it through the lifting lens and it wasn't until realizing that I had to have a surgery, you know, like that was something that was kind of, I was like, shit, 
talking to you, you introduced me to Goda, you introduced me to this idea that there are more rotary patterns and rotational elements of movement. And I was like, fuck, I didn't even, I can't believe I didn't even think of this stuff. And maybe throw a medicine ball against the wall, but that was the extent of the rotation that I would ever try to do. And that was excruciating for me because I was just like this brick. I was like a brick all the time. So definitely getting out of that uh, paradigm a little bit. You know, I, I kind of actually, you know what, to be fair, I did go through like quite a big phase of Edo Portal stuff and I was trying all the locomotion, but it was extremely unnatural and awkward to me. And even, yeah. even revisiting some of the Edo Portal stuff and some of the groundwork and, and some of that stuff while I'm trying to do more training to optimize gait and try to, you know, have an efficient run so that I can enjoy running and that I can do some sprints and even, uh, even apply it to some of my cycling mechanics. Like when I'm on a bike, I found doing some of these crawling patterns and some of these deep squat patterns and even some of the gymnastics stuff. Like I've been doing 500 pushups a day, uh, every day, right. With my, with a buddy of mine. And I keep getting this question, is it affecting your gait mechanics? It's like, yeah, of course it is. <laughs> like I'm doing 500 pushups. I'm like in this shortened range in my pecs and I have to do a lot of, you know, a lot of mechanical work so that I can have that nice arm swing back. And it doesn't, uh, it doesn't affect that elastic bounce from when I'm side to side, creating that reciprocal energy transfer from uh, back and forth. It has helped some stability. So when I'm full tilt, I'm full sending a sprint. I get that snap back a little bit more because that fascia along, you know, along the anterior part of my pecs and everything, it's really tight. It's really elastic. So I'm swinging my arms back and it's snapping back like a rubber band. Right. But it has definitely affected how smooth everything feels like before I didn't have very big pecs. I didn't have very, you know, uh, I didn't have a lot of endurance necessarily. Um, but I was efficient. I was smooth. Everything was just like easy. Now I kind of feel like it's like to swing my arm back. It feels like I almost have to fight to swing my arm back and it just pops right back. So of course doing to everyone who's in my Instagram DMs, like is 500 pushups affecting your biomechanics? Like, duh. Yeah, of course it is. I just have to do extra work for it. I'm just doing this challenge. And then when the hundred days are over, which I think we have like 30 days left when that hundred days are over, we're, uh, I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> Well, uh, it's funny that you mentioned Edo Portel because I do think it's a paradigm change. A lot of people have done that, right? Like a lot of people went to Edo Portel when he was hot, probably like five to seven years ago, I would say. Mm. Um, there was a big push. A lot of people went that way. I do think the ground-based stuff is very nuanced. You don't need to do it that much and you need to do it very particularly because a lot of people are lacking that range of motion. So a lot of people think uh, you just get down there and you'll be you'll eventually adapt to it. But I don't think it works like that. Even with the Kelly Starrett stuff where he's like, just get down for 30 minutes a day. I think that would have been a better application or sorry, 10 minutes a day for people to start. The lizard yeah. crawls and all that is a little bit too much. But I do think that there is a um, kind of a marrying of uh, ideas there where even the Greg Lehman and the Andrew Locke saying that the hips being the prime mover and the hips having space is very, very key. Cause once you lose that, you're compensating above and below. Okay. And especially internal rotation, missing internal rotation is very key. So, um, I think that there's a marrying of ideas there that hip space is very key. Now, how do you get that hip space? Is it to do more in internal rotation? 
Is it to get more space in the back of the hip, right? I think FRC says more space in the back of the hip. I think someone like Devin Brown would say internal, more internal rotation because that opens up the fascia or the muscles in the back. I'm not so sure if he says muscles or fascia. I think it's more fascia in the back, right? So I do do a little bit of internal rotation as well. And then Gota says, you know, Gota does the, uh, what are they called? The rockers and the bow. That also opens up space in the back, but the marrying of ideas there is opening up space in the back of the hip, even with the lifting world. Do that so you have more space in the hips and you have to transfer less into your low back. Mm. Whether you think it's in the frontal plane or sagittal plane or as you're in motion, either way, if you're missing hip motion and especially internal rotation, you're going to dump into your back. Okay, so... Um, there's a marrying of ideas there between kind of all of them. Uh, now there's different applications like FRC is like very slow, controlled articular rotations. They're missing pressure wave. They're missing actual motion. They're missing applying it there. You could do FRC just to do FRC. And it's like, you get better at it just like lifting, but what's the end goal you're going to have, they would say you're building a hip, but they're missing the actual movement component. And yeah, then. Well, like, yeah, how much, how much actual range of motion do you need in your hip for locomotion and for, you know, a, a comfortable resting squat pattern? Like, how, like I would say almost like if you have appropriate fascial tensioning, you can access these patterns and you'll have, you'll have yeah. a lot of stability and a lot of safety in your joints because you have the fascial integrity to support the actual system. You don't necessarily need to just articulate this like ball and socket over and over and over and over again. And again, I like that for like my wrist, for example, like my wrist gets sore on the regs where the scar tissue is. And so I'll stretch the fascia out a little bit and I'll do a bunch of controlled articular rotations. And then my wrist starts to feel like a normal wrist. It doesn't feel like an all scarred up wrist anymore. And I can, I can use it. And so that's very useful contextually, right? There's, there's a lot of context that you have to apply to this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's like putting motor oil in like the synovial fluid, it's getting motion. Um, however, it's not putting it into actual application of spirals, mm. right? Like I like to do ropes because I can express those spirals. I like to do boxing because I can express the spirals in many different motions. Right. And to me, that's prehab or mm. rehab, right? Because I'm actually moving the joints as they're supposed to move walking and running. It's big. It doesn't have to be a fast run. I like longer, slower runs where I can still express the motions of my body, but it's not at a high pace where everything has to go to its max. Now with FRC, they would say kind of the same argument that I heard, uh, I think Devin Brown say, uh, maybe I'm straw manning. I don't know. I, I shouldn't say like what other people are saying, but I've, I've heard it's you build the attributes so that you can go use it in whatever you want. I think that FRC personally does well better in like jujitsu where it's not locomotion. It's like you mm -hmm. actually need those mm -hmm. ranges of motion yes. because yeah, because the same, like the art controlled articular rotation, imagine getting in an arm bar, you now have that range of motion. You've now felt that your nervous system will say, I'm not going to shut off mm -hmm. and I can move my body around that where it's not so, uh, good in application towards mechanics because they're missing the fact that it's a pressure wave it's a rotary motion and it's fascial driven not right. so much slow so controlled articulation one example i was trying to think of an example that would illustrate the attributes idea remember when we were watching that video of uh, elliot kachobe 
and yeah. we were noticing that he was like inside ankle bone low, and yet he had this fascial integrity that allowed him to bounce, right? Like he was like he was flying. His fascial integrity is his attribute, right? So he might not have the the byproduct of a good you know bow and corner or like an inside ankle bone high position where he's efficiently transferring that you know off the bony bridge of his foot necessarily, but he has the attributes of fascial integrity and bounciness. I mean, he has that spiraling ability, right? So so he has that attribute within him. We even mm-hmm. said it's like, well, we'd rather have the fascial integrity than an inside ankle. Like I'd rather, I like if I was a runner, I would rather have that than you know not have that and be inside ankle bone high. Absolutely. So that's you know, so to a degree, like you can actually have suboptimal positions for energy transference while also having attributes that protect your body and create, uh, you know, a different level of how your body handles. Uh, force force transference that doesn't necessarily mean that you can just have uh, you know all like again movement optimism where you can just progressively train whatever pattern and it'll automatically make you bulletproof like this idea of bulletproofing your joints with uh with an atg split squat and then you get all all these people you know you hear a lot about the 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 people who do really really well with it but you don't hear about all the people who have knee injuries from doing atg right yeah because you know, they get blocked. <laughs> so, yeah, no, for, for sure. Like there's a lot of that, right? Like, um, haters of, of FP will be like, did you hear about this guy who got injured from FP? It's like, did you hear about all the people who did well from FP? It's like scoliosis and like yeah. healed their back pain. And here, here's the thing that I was, right. I was thinking about this. I wanted to bring this up. Actually, the, one of the biggest things that people like to do is they like to post screenshots of like, I used to be an FP and now I'm in Goda. It's like, I used to be in Gota and now I'm in WEC method. Fucking, uh, we talked to Tim Sheaf. Tim was in functional patterns, got a Gota recode, and now he's full tilt into WEC method. It doesn't matter. Like there's there's going to be like, everyone is an individual. They are going to find movement practices that are contextually relevant for their body and their journeys. Mm-hmm. And there's all, like there is no one ultimate system. Everyone should aspire to make their system the one ultimate system, I think. I think that is a good aspiration to do because it forces you to look at a lot of complex problems with nuance and integrity. But the reality is, like, you know, egos aside, no no one thing is for everyone. I hate to say it, guys. Like, sorry. (laughs) Well, I kind of disagree with that and agree with it at the same time. Like, it depends who you are, right? Like, for, for me and for us, I have the... Like I've looked into so many different systems that I have the, you know, from doing that in the past, I understand the models. So I understand where they intersect and where they go against each other, which is why we have the podcast, right? Like we're, mm. we're talking about that sort of thing, right? So it's not for everybody. Not everybody can go that deep with it. Some people get into a certain system and they're like, this is the one for me, right? And then some people for one or another reason get into a system and it's not for them. Let's say... Um, for instance, somebody gets into Goda and they go into an anterior tilt or, or like a one of a kind, and they go into an anterior tilt with their pelvis and they're like, ow, that hurts my back. But it's only because they have like a, a slight inflammation or a issue with one of the joints in their lumbar spine. Hmm. They could have used FRC style principles right before that to work that out so that they were good to go in that new system. Do you know what I mean? So yes, there's a I lot do. of nuances towards that. Um, I was even thinking, uh, you know, like the, the, the Gota thing that, um, 
that Nathan from MoveMed was criticizing was this idea that you're going to be neurotic and you're going to be like, you know, overly flexing in these certain positions, right? And I actually caught myself uh, more than a year into doing go-to workouts, actively flexing in these positions. And only in the last month or two, I've learned to start relaxing and put my joints in these positions to naturally create tensions as opposed to forcing tensions. Because, because again, like my lifting background was how much can I irradiate? How much can I actively flex these muscles to force the, you know, to create force and to generate tension and trying to release that tension and allow my body to have more efficiency in these patterns. Like I, I watched some old videos of myself doing some, uh, some biomech workouts and I'm grimacing and I'm like, it looks like I'm doing a max effort lift. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is my conditioning. This is the thing that I've conditioned my body to naturally do. I'll feel a bit of tension and I'll flex it. I'll squeeze it. I'm, I'm going to try to feel it as much as I can. Mind muscle connection, man. Like as much as I can. I used to do that in yoga. Even I was yeah. like, you know, like stretching my arms out as much as I could, like counter force in warrior two and twist as hard as I can into this posture. Every, like everything was yang energy. And so, you know, if a person is going into this, this, you know, these biomechanical practices, they need to learn how to relax if they're coming from a, a lifting background. If they're learning, you know, if they're, if they come from this irradiation and this like hard, hard, literally hardcore um, mentality, I was still squeezing my core to try and get more access into a drop-in. As soon as I relaxed and I got myself in the right position and I just like articulated, I was like, oh, wow, this is, uh, huh, this is, this is what it's supposed to feel like. Yeah. It's supposed to, to be more efficient. To be fair to go to like, they're not saying to do that, but no, they aren't. Um, that could be a, uh, an issue going in. Right. So, um, and, and there's also not everybody's going to, let's say, we do think Gota is the ultimate and there's nothing else. Not everybody's going to access it that way. They might access it. Uh, like you have to go by steps. I had to go into steps. Like when I was in CrossFit, even going from like powerlifting and bodybuilding to CrossFit was a step, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it was a weird step. Cause it's like, you're going to get less strong, but uh, I justified it. Like I'm going to be able to have more skills. So cool. Right. And then going from CrossFit to like Edel Portel, that was a huge step. But what have I, would I have been able to go from CrossFit to like a WEC method or GOTA right away or an FP? Probably not. I needed that intermediate step. So everyone's going to assess things a little bit differently and they might need to hit an ATG before they go to, you know, a GOTA or something like that. I did. <laughs> yeah. Like a, a lot of people will find their way to different systems, uh, irrelevant of whether one system is better than the other. Right. I think so. the, the, the funniest thing that I did while I was like in that in between phase was I was trying to do an ATG drop in. So I was getting my knees way over my toes and trying to drop in at the same time. It was, it was a disaster. Like, don't, don't do I that bet. guys. <laughs> it's bad. It's, it's messy. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yes, you definitely need an intermediate. I think, uh, I think the, the exploration of these movement practices and these training systems are very useful. Um, but to make it the core of your entire practice and to, to specialize in anything, you're, you know, Edo Portelis is the best. The more you specialize, the bigger the price you have to pay. Right. So, Absolutely. Um, I think, uh, I think these biomechanical approaches really offer the benefit of having a generalist approach to movement, or at least an approach to movement that, uh, kind of considers the way that the, the, the native functions of the human body, walking, running, throwing, standing 
et cetera. It's posture focus. It's, it's locomotion focus. It's throwing focus. If you, if you approach the body in that way, you can generalize and approach them, approach your specific problems with the nuance and context that it requires your thinking to, to approach it from. On that note, I have to wrap this up. Unfortunately, I didn't realize that we're like over an hour already. Uh, this was episode 83 of The Art of Move, I do believe. So thank you for listening, guys. We'll catch you on the next episode. And uh, thank you, as always, for listening. If you're listening on YouTube, please like, comment, subscribe. Let us know what you thought. Let us know if there's things that you agree with or disagree with. Uh, you can find me at The Body Moves on Instagram. You can find Will at The Art of Move. We'll catch you on the next episode of The Art of Move podcast. I think you're muted. Sorry about that. Yeah. Well, let, let's do a part two to this one because I got to yes. one out of uh, like 20 clips because um, it really does show the uh, the lack of evidence towards how to lift basically yeah, or what, definitely. Uh, what lifting actually does within your body. There's no evidence for it. It's not out there. It doesn't exist. Everybody thinks it's there. It's not there. We will show this in part two. Absolutely. Keep an eye out, guys. We'll let you know when it's coming out. Have a good one. That was great. Yeah, I thought it was good. It started off kind of slow, but uh, I thought it went like always yeah, when you we, listen back, you're like, yeah, we picked up, man. We picked up. I thought I thought it was pretty decent. I uh, I always get really bored talking about lifting debates. Like immediately, I get bored talking about lifting debates. I'm like, at this moment, where it's like, why are we why are we listening to these guys debate about lifting? <laughs> and and then I then I saw the overall. I saw the over overarching point where it's like oh it's because they don't know what they're talking about <laughs> it's I, I really want to show the because everybody has that in their head mm. that there is evidence all this evidence out there for squats for deadlifts it doesn't exist yeah and and they're saying it themselves so i really want to expose that I'm because because uh nobody's going to be able to come out afterwards we can clip it and be like oh really your your guy says there's not right so um yeah, it's important. Let's let's do one ASAP. I'll even do it tomorrow if you want. Yeah, I can do one tomorrow. Um, I'm teaching a class at 10:30 in the morning till 11:30, and then I might have another call. But let's, uh, yeah, we could definitely do one tomorrow. We'll do a uh, last minute. Just let me know. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Have so a good again, one, man. Yeah, you too. I'll talk to you Take soon. It easy.